0: Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise and every episode I bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode we're going to talk about American missionary to New Guinea, Darlene dibler Rose. mentioned in the previous episode that *Darling Rose was the first missionary biography that I ever heard and to be honest it's one of those that has stuck with me the most and I'm not sure if that's because it's the first one I ever listened to or because it's just that impactful and I want to say it's probably a little bit of both but I'm gonna leave it for you to decide I'm gonna tell you her story and let's see how you find it and I do trust that you will find it at least on some level as impactful as I did. Darlene was born in a little town called Boone in Iowa in March of 1917. When she was nine years old, she gave her life to Christ. One year later, while at a revival service, she felt the Lord calling her to a life of missionary service. One of the things I find so encouraging and so cool is often how young the missionaries on these shows dedicate their lives to Christ. Like, you know, they become believers. But then, you know, not very long after that, while they're still children or teenagers, they give their life to Christ in a more deeper and meaningful way. Maybe not more deeper and meaningful, but you know what I mean. They take that next step of faith there. And that night she prayed, Lord, I will go anywhere with you no matter what it cost. Now, looking back later, she had absolutely no idea what she meant at that point when she was 10 years old. She had no idea the things that God would be calling her to do and asking her to follow him. But none of us do. When we make a prayer like that, when we ask God to lead us, we promise God that we will follow him you know, anywhere. We don't know exactly what it is that we're saying. And honestly, it's probably better that we don't. Because if we knew exactly what it was that God had in store for us each and every day throughout our lives, I think the Lord knows what he's doing when he shows us a little bit at a time. Her prayer of commitment reminds me of Betty Stam's prayer. They're both very similar, or at least they echo very similar themes. They have the very same idea. And if you haven't listened and have no idea what I'm talking about, that is because you have not listened to the first episode. And I'm disappointed. No, not really. It's fine. I'll link it in the episode description so that after you finish this episode, then you can listen to that one. In August of 1937, at the young age of 19, she married Russell Deibler, a pioneer missionary to New Guinea who was home on his first and only furlough. They did their language study in Holland. I believe they were studying Dutch, but it could have also been Indonesian, but probably Dutch. And they promptly arrived in Makassar, which is a port city on the east coast of Sulawesi, which is the largest Indonesian island. They actually arrived on their first wedding anniversary. They began teaching at the Macassar Bible School, and several months later, Russell, along with some other men, left for the interior of New Guinea to try to establish a mission camp among a recently discovered tribe. And I'm going to say their name, and I will probably get it wrong, but I believe it is the Kapaku, but I have also read that they refer to themselves as the Me, which means the people, and so for the sake of not getting the other name wrong, I will refer to them as the Me. Now, during this 18-day harrowing trek, Russell lost over 30 pounds, and most of the skin on his feet was lost due to jungle rot, which is just as gross as it sounds. Every day, Darlene would have to take her husband's feet in her hands. She would have to take off the gauze. She would take tweezers, and she would peel away the rotting flesh to get to the raw throbbing flesh underneath. And there was blood and there was pus and there was pain. And I will be perfectly honest with you. I think if my husband had to have me do that to him every day, it, it, you know, I, I think it'd be better if somebody else did it. Because I I don't know how she did it. I I listen to this story and I just, you're there in the room and you can kind of picture it. And it's just, it's so... It's a lot, but she would do that every day and she'd put this ointment on it and then she'd wrap it back up and she would do that every single day until his feet began to heal and the new skin began to form. Now, one day, Dr. Robert Jaffrey, who is a phenomenal, famous missionary in his own right that we will probably cover on this show at some point, he walks into the room and he sees what Darlene is doing and he immediately walks back out having become very nauseated, as I believe we all would be. But a few hours later, he comes back and he has in his hands the missionary newsletter, which was called The Pioneer. And in it was an article, and this is what the article said. This morning, I looked at the bleeding feet of a missionary, saw his wife tending them, saw the blood and pus running from them, and thought, what a nauseating sight. But as I walked from that room, the Lord kept saying to me, oh, but to me, they are beautiful feet. Then I remembered, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, Isaiah fifty two seven. Good tidings to men and women like those in New Guinea who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Some day it will all be over. Some day the tired, bleeding feet of the missionaries will, for the last time, cross over those broken bottle limestone mountains. Some day, for the last time, they will go down into one of those newly discovered valleys. Someday, for the last time, they will speak the message of redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometime, the last one will turn to Jesus. Then the clouds will part, and our Savior will be there. I'm not sure if this is going to pick up, but in the background it is raining very, very loudly, and perhaps it will pick up, in which case, as always, consider it to be the ambiance of the episode. The Dibblers spent a few years among the Mii people before returning to Macassar. It was then that they heard about the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the invasion of the Japanese among the islands. Darlene noticed that they could climb to the top of a hill in the interior and watch the Japanese boats as they sailed back and forth across the Makassar Strait. The Japanese were coming in very, very quickly. Dr. Jaffrey called the missionaries together and told them it was time to decide whether they would stay or return home. And this was a decision that was not met lightly, and so they took all night to pray about it, and miraculously the next morning they all felt as though they should stay. The next afternoon they heard that the ship which was to take them away from the island had been torpedoed and there were no survivors. In due time the Japanese took over Macassar and placed them under house arrest. Soon enough they came and took the men away to a POW camp on the other side of the island. They came quickly and gave them little time to prepare or say their goodbyes. Darlene hurried to fill a pillowcase with clothes and other items. As she handed Russell the pillowcase, he said, Remember one thing, dear. God has said he would never leave us nor forsake us. And those were the last words she would ever hear him say. That was March of 1942, and she was barely 25 years old. With the men gone, the women were very easy targets for bandits. And one day she recalls she was asleep in bed when she was suddenly wakened by a man standing in the room with a giant machete. And she says, I have no idea what came over me. No idea at all. But suddenly she recalls that she was screaming and running at the man and he turns around and he runs out of the house. And as she comes out of the door and she stops... And she thinks, what on earth am I doing? What is happening? And she can see in the jungle line there, there are about 10 other bandits. And she thinks, they're going to come at me now. They all have knives. They're all armed. But instead, they all freaked out. And they turned around and ran off into the jungle. And they never bothered them again. Now, she always thought it was the gardener because he knew the layouts of the houses and he knew what they had and things like that. So after the war, she asked him, she says, so why exactly didn't you come back? And he said, it was because of all the people in the white robes that were surrounding your house. A few months after the attempted bandit attack, she and the other women and children were rounded up and eventually taken to a prison camp for women called Campili. The 600 women and children at the camp were surrounded by barbed wire, flooded rice fields and divided into eight barracks. Many of them were women, just like Darlene, who had had their husbands ruthlessly taken from them. That first night, Darlene gathered the women together in her barracks, and they read scripture and prayed. And this became a nightly ritual for the women for the remainder of their time at the camp. Conditions were harsh, but eventually the women settled into a routine. They were required to raise the pigs and the chickens to the Japanese, work in the camp gardens, work as nurses in the camp hospital, cook the daily portions of food, sew uniforms for the soldiers, and even fell trees, clear land, and unload trucks. Darlene was stricken with every tropical disease one could possibly have. She had dysentery, beriberi, cerebral malaria, just to name a few of them, and she prayed to the Lord asking him for healing, because any one of these things could kill her. And she prayed to God for total healing, and he delivered. She was still malnourished and underweight and living in a POW camp, but God showed her that he had not forsaken her. One day a wagon came to the camp filled with wooden clogs that the men's camp had made for their wives. She had not heard anything from or about Russell in over a year, but when she received her clogs, Russell had included a little scrap of one of his shirts. of months later she found out from another woman that russell had passed away three months ago from dysentery the day she received her clogs he'd already been dead a month she writes this in her autobiography it was one of those moments when i felt that the lord had left me he had forsaken me my whole world fell apart in my anguish of soul i looked up my lord was there and i cried out but god immediately he said My child, did I not say that when thou passest through the waters, I would be with thee? And through the floods, they would not overflow thee. Later that day, she was called to the camp commander, Mr. Yamaji's office. Mr. Yamaji was a harsh and a hard man, and he was infamous for beating a man to death at the men's camp. He had even commanded that each woman was required to catch 100 flies a day to help with the fly infestation that had taken over the pigsties, the pigs being of more worth and value than the women. She had no idea what to expect when she arrived, a grieving widow who had lost her husband not days ago, not weeks ago, but had found out he had been dead for three months. And he was standing behind the desk when she arrived. Mrs. Dibler, I want to talk with you, he began. This is war. Yes, Mr. Yamaji, I understand that. What you heard today, women in Japan have heard. Yes, sir, I understand that too. You're very young. Some day the war will be over and you can go back to America. You can go dancing. Go to the theater again. Marry again. Forget these awful days. You have been a great help to the other women in the camp. And I ask of you... Don't lose your smile. Mr. Yamaji, may I have permission to talk to you? He nodded, sat down, and then motioned for me to take the other chair. Mr. Yamaji, I don't sorrow like people who have no hope. I want to tell you about someone of whom you may have never heard. I learned about him when I was a little girl in Sunday school back in Boone, Iowa, in America. His name is Jesus. He is the son of Almighty God the creator of heaven and earth. God opened the most wonderful opportunity to lay the plan of salvation before the Japanese camp commander. Tears started to pour down his cheeks. He died for you, Mr. Yamaji, and he puts love in our hearts, even for those who are our enemies. And that's why I don't hate you, Mr. Yamaji. Maybe God brought me to this place in time to tell you that he loves you. Mr. Yamaji stood up abruptly from the chair, tears streaming down his face, and ran out of the room. In 1944, the Kempeitai, or the Japanese secret police, came for Darlene, accusing her of being an American spy. And she was terrified, because this was a death sentence. Many a time a shiny black limousine had pulled into the camp and taken women away, never to be seen again and the few that did come back were never the same as they had been before. When Darlene arrived at the headquarters, she was thrown into a solitary confinement cell with a single window looking out into the courtyard and with an inscription written above the door which said, This person must die. She was on death row. Every day she was taken from her cell into a room and interrogated by two men whom she called the Brain and the Inquisitor and they would ask her question after question, and when they were not satisfied with an answer, they would strike her across the face and across the neck so hard that she thought at certain points that her neck may snap. When she returned to her cell, all she had to eat was a meager ration of maggot-filled rice porridge. Her only companions were the mosquitoes on the wall that, as she said, sat there merely because they were so full of my rich red blood that they couldn't move. As a child, she had felt driven to memorize lots of scripture and lots of hymns. And during this time, she realized just what a valuable thing that had been, because these things she had memorized were what sustained her. Things she thought she had forgotten, she suddenly remembered and was able to recall with perfect, perfect memory. A few weeks before she was taken, she once again felt driven to memorize this particular hymn. "'He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater.' He sendeth more strength than the labors increase. To added afflictions, He addeth His mercy. To multiplied trials, He multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits, His grace has no measures. His power no boundary, no none to men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. One day she had pulled herself up to stand and was able to look out the courtyard window. And as she watched the women in the courtyard, some of them other missionaries who had been given lighter sentences, and so they were allowed to go out into the courtyard and breathe fresh air. And as she watched them, she realized there was a woman who was going over to this side of the fence that had been covered over with these vines. And she would wait until the guard who was watching over them would walk to the other side of the compound, and she would run over, and she would run back to the group when she realized the guard was getting closer. And as the woman watched the guard walk away again, she ran over to the vines, and out shot a hand holding a bunch of fresh, beautiful-looking bananas. And the woman casually took the bananas from the hand and put it into her sarong, and strolled casually back over the group of women, either the guard, nor they being any the wiser. The only one who had seen this maneuver was Darlene. And as she sank back into her cell, sitting on the floor, amused, but she suddenly began to crave bananas. She thought, oh lord, if I could have just one banana. I I don't want a bunch, you know, like she has. I just want one banana. And as she thought about people who could give her a banana, the list wasn't very long. It consisted of three people. And each time she thought about them, she said, Nah, I can't. It's impossible. They would never be able to get me a banana. And even if they could, it would cost them too much. And It's not worth it. And so, Lord, don't worry. I know you can't get me a banana. It's too much to ask. Now, on certain days, Japanese commanders from various camps would come to the police headquarters, and they would go around from cell to cell, and they enjoyed tormenting and leering and jeering at the prisoners. And you had to make sure that when they came to your cell that you bowed at a perfect 90 degree angle, because if you did not, then you were caned over the back multiple times. Now Darlene heard the limousine roll up, and she knew what was coming, and she was very, very, very weak and she prayed to the Lord for strength. She said, Lord, give me strength so that I can stand up and I can bow at a perfect 90-degree angle. And she heard the guard's leather boots come closer to her cell, and she heard the key enter into the lock, and it jiggled for a minute, but it was the wrong key. And as he walked away, she sat down because she had exhausted her strength. And as she heard him come back, she willed herself up again and said, Lord, please help me. Please help me make a perfect 90-degree angle. And as the door opened, and she looked upon the face that was in the door, it was none other than Mr. Yamaji. She was so excited. She said, Mr. Yamaji, it's like seeing an old friend. And tears filled his eyes as he looked away. And he walked, and he went over to two guards, and he talked with them for a minute. And as he returned, he said, You're very ill, aren't you? Yes, sir, Mr. Yamaji, I am. I'm going to go back to camp now. Have you any word for the women? The Lord gave me confidence in the answer. Yes, sir, when you go back, please tell them for me that I'm all right. I'm still trusting the Lord. They'll understand what I mean, and I believe you do too. All right, he replied, and then turning on his heels, he left. And as the joyous seeing Mr. Yamaji faded and it turned to complete horror because she realized that she had forgotten to bow she began to internally berate herself lord why why did i forget to bow i am going to be in so much trouble they're going to cane me they're going to beat me lord why did i forget to bow and once again she heard leather boots come quickly to her cell and she prepared herself for the beating she knew was sure to arrive and as the door opened a guard came and in his hand, he was holding a very large bunch of bananas. And he laid them inside her cell, and he shut the door. And as she counted them, she realized they were 92 bananas. And she writes this, "'In all my spiritual experience, I have never known such shame before my Lord. I pushed the bananas into a corner, and I wept before him. Lord, forgive me. I am so ashamed.'" I couldn't trust you enough to get me even one banana. Just look at them. They're almost a hundred. In the quiet of the shadowed cell, he answered back within my heart, That's what I delight to do, the exceeding abundant above anything you ask or think. And I knew in those moments that nothing is impossible to my God. Now you also have to remember that she is still on death row. And so one day, the guards came for her, and they came for a few other women as well. And they led them outside, and they gathered them together. And they knew this was their last moment. This was the end. And as the guards slowly unsheathed his sword, a limousine came peeling into the camp. And there was confusion, just abounding. Nobody knew what to do. The women were suddenly whisked into the limousine. And before they knew it, they were taken back to the camp. They were back in Mr. Yamashi's camp. He had saved their lives and kept them from being executed. In late 1945, the camp was liberated and she returned home weighing only 80 pounds. A mere four years later, she returned to New Guinea again with her second husband, Jerry Rose, to carry on the work that she had started. And she, her husband, and two sons ministered in New Guinea and the Australian outback for another 40 plus years. And in 1976, she heard from a friend that Mr. Yamashi had been heard on the Japanese radio. He was heard sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Japanese people, testifying to his cruelty in World War II, but also bearing witness that he was a different man now because of Christ. And because Darlene, in her suffering and grieving state, allowed God to use her to share the gospel to a man she had every earthly reason to despise. There is so much more we could go through here. Her life is just so incredible, and we have honestly barely scratched the surface. And I wanted to go through her autobiography like we did with Gladys, but all I have is the audiobook because the physical copy is not available to be shipped to me where I am. And audiobooks are so slow that I ran out of time. I'm about two hours in, and I, I promise you, I am barely past the introduction. So I will link her autobiography in the episode description, and I highly encourage you, as I always do with missionary autobiographies, to read it. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it out, don't be shy, spread it far and wide. As always, thanks for listening to Mars and Missionaries. I'm Elise.